It's New Year's Eve. The year will soon be 1983. And Diane Jones, a thin, blonde-haired and attractive woman in her mid-thirties, is attending the Colchester house party of her friend, double-glazing salesman Mick Bates. For the past month or so, she's been living separated from her husband Robert, on her own in a small bedsit, just a short walk from where the party is now being held. She's been drinking all evening, and Mick and his wife Toby remember clearly how she says, I'm going to disappear and never come back. She repeats this several times. I'm going to disappear and nobody is going to be able to find me. Just you wait. One of these days I'm going to disappear and never come back. It is only afterwards that Mick and Toby will remember her words. They are speaking to a young Colchester Gazette journalist called Christine Toomey, sometime one hot August day in 1983, and Diane Jones has been missing for almost a month. Toby will say adamantly, it was if she planned to go away and never be found. Welcome to Outlines. I'm your host, Jess Carter, and today we look at the disappearance and murder of Diane Jones. This is part one, the life of Diane Jones. I'd like to take a second to explain to you that the work I do to compile this show is taken from publicly accessible sources, and while myself and any additional researchers I may use make every effort to ensure that information is accurate... Sometimes sources conflict, articles misreport, and rumour becomes fact. Please, if you spot a discrepancy anywhere in our episodes, drop me an email at theoutlinespodcast at gmail.com or go to Facebook and search for The Outlines Podcast where you can let me know by comment or message. For now, grab a cup of tea, sit back and join me as I outline the complexities of the life of Diane Jones. We're going to start on the day Diane disappears. It is a Saturday, the 23rd of July, 1983, and England is in the throes of a particularly warm summer. Diane is wearing a brightly coloured dress, mauve and pink, Indian cotton with thin drawstring straps. She's been living back with her husband, local doctor Robert Jones, in the village of Coggeshall for a while now, and has told him just a few days before 
that she believes she is two months pregnant. In the afternoon, she goes to get her hair done at one of the local hairdressers. The boyfriend of her stylist later says, She seemed a little strange that day. It is only after she disappears that he realises who she was, but he says he remembers her anyway because she was talking in riddles. She looked obviously strange. He said that her manner was off and maybe she was high or drunk and that she demanded she get given an opinion on her haircut before she went out. Later in the evening, Diane makes a quick phone call to sometime boyfriend Nigel Gravenstead and then, at around 10.20, she and her husband Robert arrive at the Woolpack, a 15th century timber-framed pub just a three-minute drive away from their home at Lee's Farm. She's still wearing her mauven pink dress, paired with beige slingback sandals and maybe a slight wedge. She has on knickers but no bra, and she's carrying an aged tan leather handbag. On her wrist is a gold Omega watch with a crocodile strap, and she wears a platinum strand necklace. Witnesses remember that she was drunk, and that when it was time to close up, she did not want to go. She fell off of her bar stool and had to be helped up. A witness tells that she said to Dr Jones, I'm not going home with you, you'll beat me up. Dr Jones then put his dog and Diane's brown handbag in his car and returned for Diane. The landlord, Bill, says that his wife Judith had to help her out and that they threw her over the shoulder of her husband and he carried her away into the car. This is the last time that anyone other than Robert will see her alive. Once in the car, Robert drives Diane the short distance back to their home at Lee's farm and leaves her at the front gates while he goes to park the car in their three-bay garage. Diane does not accompany Robert because, as he tells it, gravel damages ladies' heels. Sometime in between Robert leaving Diane at the gates of the drive and his return just five minutes later, Diane disappears. Nine days will pass before on the 1st of August, Robert reports her missing. It will be another three months until her beaten and badly decomposed body will be found dumped in a copse near Brightwell in Suffolk. We're not there yet, though. First, I want to talk to you about, in the words of one newspaper article, the tempestuous life of Diane Jones. So, let's go back to the beginning, to long before life was becoming rocky for Diane. Let's go back to the well-kept and old-fashioned houses of Front Street, a road in the village of Tilby in Lincolnshire where Diane grew up. She was the only child to parents Sid and Phyllis Walker. Sid was a builder and Phyllis the head teacher of the local primary school, Diane's primary school. As a teenager, Diane enjoyed swimming and listening to Ella Fitzgerald, 
She wasn't exactly a model pupil, however. Her father describes her as uh, maybe a little bit spoilt. She was a happy and caring girl with lots of friends. She could be a bit bolshy, and she was very strong-willed. She refused to sit her final certificate, and so it was without grades that she left school at the age of 16. After some thought, she decided to enrol on a hairdressing course at Lincoln School of Art, and when she graduated, she went to work in salons in Sheffield and Grimsby. In 1969, at the age of 21, her parents helped her to set up her own business, a salon working out of their Tilby home. It was popular, and Sid said that people would come from miles around to have their hair done by Diane. Not content, however. In 1971, she decided to go back to college, and there she studied for O and A levels. In 1974, she met, fell in love with, and married Ian Hamilton, who owned his own piggery in nearby Market Raisin. In that year, Ian got a job in the South managing a farm, and so the couple moved. Diane decided on a career in social work, and began to study at Suffolk College in Ipswich. It was during this time that her marriage to Ian started to fall apart, and soon she met swimming pool manager Paul Barnes. It did not take long for Diane to leave Ian and move in with Paul at his rented home on St Anne's Close, Coggeshall. It had been only two years since she'd moved to Essex, but Diane had found love with Paul. Together they bought their bungalow and she had started a job as a social worker. By all accounts, it was a happy time in her life, but something was to change. In 1978, she received news that her mother had died, and it was this that would be the beginning of far unhappier times. father, Sid, told various news outlets in the wake of her disappearance that it was after the death of her mother that Diane started to develop a drinking problem. He told reporters that they, Diane and her mother, were very close and she couldn't cope with her death. Then Diane and Paul began to have problems. They would fight noisily and neighbours remember that sometimes those fights ended with Diane shouting and screaming, running up the street outside their house. This time of her life would ultimately culminate in 1979 with her attempting suicide. It was then that she first came into contact with Coggeshall GP Dr Robert Jones. He was the man assigned as her doctor in the wake of her suicide bid, but they quickly developed a relationship that transcended doctor-patient. At the time, Robert was still married to his second wife, and they had two young sons together. But during the year of 1980, that relationship fell apart, and in 1981, Diane moved in with Robert to his home at Lee's Farm, a luxury, sprawling property on the outskirts of the village. However... 
This was not the fresh start that Diane might have hoped for. Their relationship was unstable and violent. In the early days, Robert, Diane and her ex, Paul, tried to keep an amiable friendship going. But that was to change when late one night Diane arrived at Paul's house covered in cuts, bruises and dried blood. She spent the night at her old house and the following evening an angry Paul paid Robert a visit, during which he punched him hard in the face. For this, he received a court fine and was bound over to keep the peace. Sadly, this was not an isolated incident, and Diane was often observed by friends and locals to be badly bruised. But she returned to her husband time and time again, and in early 1982, she gave birth to their child, her first, only to have that child taken into care just two months later. This was a great tragedy to Diane, and according to Robert, her drinking worsened as a result. In mid-1982, Diane and Robert's problems were worsening, and Diane took the decision to temporarily move out of their home, and with the help of Essex County Council Social Services, she was found lodging in Tulshant Major, in the house of 51-year-old Edith Ratcliffe. She was to only stay in this house for about a week, but it was to be an eventful time, though... I ask you to remember that everything you are about to hear is taken from Edith's reported account of Diane's short stay in her home. When Diane arrived, she was covered in bruises and scared stiff. She drank heavily, and when drunk she would punch and pinch Edith to try to make herself understood. She stole sherry from the cupboard and was frequently seen drinking at the Bell Pub just down the road. She also developed a habit of walking about with her negligee undone in front of Edith's husband and sons, but Edith says she never felt threatened by this. In the afternoons, Diane would call up Robert and they'd spend the evening together. One night, as she drove home, a driver ran her Fiat off of the road and she returned, her face covered in blood and refusing to say who had done it. As a result of that crash, and with her car out of action, the next evening she took it upon herself to steal Mr Ratcliffe's car. It was a short and tempestuous stay in the Ratcliffe family home, and Edith recalls clearly a conversation they had together. Diane told her, If I disappear, go to the police, because someone can get rid of me in a way where no one can ever find me. Soon, though, she was back home in Coggeshall, and by the next month, Diane and Robert were married.
As we move into the last 10 months of Diane's life, facts become more difficult to pin down. What we do know is that during the autumn of 1982, just six weeks after their marriage, Diane and Robert decided on a trial separation. Diane was drinking heavily and struggling to cope with the knowledge that her only child was in the care of social services. She moved out of Lee's farm and found herself a bedsit on Malden Road in the nearby town of Colchester. Her father remembers this time as being particularly dark. He tells journalist Christine Toomey, She phoned a lot when she lived in that dingy little bedsit in Colchester. She was desperately unhappy then. Diane was unemployed and drinking heavily. We know from news articles that during this time she had a number of lovers. One was Nigel Gravenstead, the man she telephoned just a few hours before her disappearance. She met Nigel late one night when, in his capacity as a taxi driver, he delivered some cigarettes to her door. According to a friend, she answered the bell naked and invited him inside. He stayed the night, and they began an affair which was to last until just a short while before her death. Another man, named as clerical worker David Wiley, told the papers that she was sex-mad. There was even a report that David was in bed with Diane one night when Robert burst in and a fight ensued between the two men. Although separated, Diane and Robert did keep in contact, though it is unclear how often they saw each other over those few months, but I understand that there was a high court agreement in effect stating that they would not molest each other. Diane's friend, Mick Bates, the one whose New Year party she attended, recalled meeting Diane who was drinking alone at the Grosvenor, their local pub. She would regularly drink there, and Mick first encountered her at the bar one cold night in December. She was on her own and had two black eyes. Mick said, I saw this sad little woman. She looked so unhappy, almost down and out. I talked to her to cheer her up. He recalls how obvious it was that she was depressed and needed someone to talk to. Soon it was the new year and the night of Mick's party. I'm going to disappear and never come back. She repeats this several times. I am going to disappear and nobody is going to be able to find me. One Saturday night, in January of 1983, Robert went against their non-molestation order and broke into Diane's flat by kicking down the door. Only a week later, Diane attended court on a charge going back to August 1982, when she was briefly living at the Rivenhall Motor Inn in Whittam, after having been physically forced from her home by Robert. One night during that time, she had driven drunk for four miles down the wrong carriageway of the A12, forcing cars to swerve into the verge. 
She did hit one van, but luckily only caused damage to the vehicle itself. And eventually a police car and an AA van performed a sandwich action to force her off of the road. The police took her back to her hotel room at the Rivenhall Inn, but she decided to go for a midnight walk where she broke into the manager's office and drank a bottle of champagne. For this, she was charged with burglary. She was also charged with drunk driving on the night of October 10th and failing to stop after hitting a parked vehicle. For these offences, she was banned from driving for three years and fined £10 for having no test certificate. On the burglary charge, she was conditionally discharged. During the trial, in court, her solicitor Christopher Holmes told the judge that Mrs Jones committed the offences while under a very great emotional strain, brought about by a marriage which is bizarre in the extreme. Regardless of the bizarre nature of their relationship, by May of that year they were back together and Diane was again living at Lee's farm. This was, in part, on the advice of a psychiatrist who said that if Diane wished to regain custody of her child, then she and Robert should attempt reconciliation. In that same month, Robert was due to appear in court charged with assault on Diane, but she refused to testify against him and all charges were dropped. Then, at the end of May, they took a two-week holiday towing a caravan to Saint-Tropez to stay with friend Mark Nichols and his wife, with whom they had holidayed in the same location the previous year. Mark would later, while in the presence of his solicitor, have to destroy topless photos of Diane taken at the beach during that holiday. So this is where Diane's life draws to a close. On their return to England, Diane and Robert tried to keep their marriage together, and on July 22nd, Diane reportedly telephoned her father, Sid, to say that she had given up drinking. He said she sounded happy and confident. The next day, she would be brutally battered to death with a spiked hammer, and her body dumped a 50-minute drive away in a lonely copse near Brightwell in Suffolk. This is where I will leave the first part of my two-part look at the murder of Diane Jones. In the next episode, I will focus on the police investigation, suspects and circumstance, and bring you up to date with any new developments in the case. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Outlines podcast. And if you've liked what you heard, please be sure to share with your friends, rate us where possible, and contact if you wish. I hope to produce episodes regularly and I'm aiming for bi-monthly, but I'm working mostly on my own, so please bear with me.
This podcast was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy. Thank you for listening to the Outlines podcast.